thanks. It is uh, helpful to recenter or refocus on life, uh, big and small, after a week like we've just seen. To come in and uh, focus on Christ and the future and God's promises to us, what He's called us to now, what He's calling us to to the future, is a great reminder when the world around us is troubled and unsettling. We're living in historic times, and that means very, very unsettled times. And it is a challenge for us as believers to keep our head when others are losing theirs. And that's what we're called to. And we have unique opportunities as the world around us swirls in troubles and confusion and accusation and division. Christ calls us to be Christ in the midst of that. And that requires us to stay focused and prayerful and humble and at peace and with Christ's joy. And that takes work and it takes focus. I've spoken to two people in the last week that said they got off social media because they couldn't afford it emotionally. It was too distracting. Which is not to say we want to bury our heads in the sand, right? Or to remain ignorant or uninformed, not at all. But rather, what is it that keeps me from being who God means me to be in this moment, in this place, and in this time? And it does require thought and prayer on our end as believers to do that. I'd recommend before we get into the message, and I'll pray here, um, with the capital under siege, the four deaths in that event, um, all that's gone on, the deep, deep divisions, as you know, that are going on culturally in this country at this time. I read a piece on cripplegate.com that I'd recommend to you. It's a, this is a blog site that I read regularly. Uh, this, was, this piece was titled Political Ethics versus Biblical Ethics. Did you know that the ethics of politics are not God's ethics necessarily? Can you see that in play in the world around us today? That Christians are called out to be a distinct people and the way we interact with the world around us should be different than those who don't have, don't know Christ. So just a reminder, it's good to be here this morning and worshiping and focusing on God and His Word. And with this song, Our Future, with the saints of the ages and the angels, it's to join together in Christ's presence, to bow before Him, to give Him the honor and the praise He deserves. And we're there as the redeemed. We're free to do so. We're free to be there. That's a, a good reminder. Well, with that, let, let me pray. Father, we do humble ourselves before You. We acknowledge that You are God and Jesus is our Savior, that the Spirit is given, that Your Word is sufficient. And we want to embrace You and Your goodwill for us in this moment, in this time and place. And we do ask You, Lord, to not only draw our hearts more fully to you personally in that relationship that's life-giving and life-enhancing. Lord, we also ask that you would be free to use us in the lives and the world around us to speak truth in love, to be Christ in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Michael. Amen, my friend. Michael's my amen corner. Uh, you know, as uh, I live, I had a birthday a month ago, 64, and the longer I live, the more aware I am of God's mercy and God's grace. And, and some of that, that's both near and far. So as I look at the world that's spiraling out of control around us, 
and at a world that I ultimately know will absolutely reject God and His Christ, Scripture says, I'm amazed at the mercy God continues to show to a Christ-rejecting world. I, guys, I'm amazed at the mercy God continues to show the church, and here I'm specifically thinking of the church in the West, not the persecuted church in parts of Africa or the Middle East, but the church in the West, that like the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, has the, the stuff, the trinkets of the world, but not necessarily the riches in Christ that were given, and we think that's a good trade. And God shows us his mercy anyway, doesn't he? And frankly, and most, most consistently, I'm amazed at God's mercy to yours truly because I see my sin. The older I get, the more of it I see. It doesn't go away. I just have eyes to see more of it. The upside of all that, at least one upside of all that, is this, that our failures, our personally, corporately, in the world around us, our failures are the backdrops by which we see God's mercy in not giving us in judgment what we do deserve and positively in His grace by giving us what we don't deserve in His grace, in His goodness, in His mercy, what we couldn't earn otherwise. I say all that as we start a new series this morning, I'm calling Mercy Waiting, Lessons in Deuteronomy. How many are really, you're excited? When I said Deuteronomy, you're like, wow, bring it on. Woo! Deuteronomy. I've told you guys, I do pray long and hard before I start a new series. And, uh, you know, with the time we're living in, I thought, Something prophetic, Revelation, First or Second Thessalonians again, something like that, and I couldn't get there, and I just kept coming back to Deuteronomy, and I thought this was where God wanted me to go. So I trust God's in the timing, whether you love Deuteronomy, know anything about it, or think it fits the time and the place we're in. But mercy waiting, and mercy is defined this way: compassion or forgiveness towards someone when it's in one's power to punish or harm. God could justly harm us, right, for our sin, the world, the church. He could. And, and mercy means, generally, He doesn't. He withholds judgment. We get mercy and compassion instead of what we've earned, what we deserve. In the passages in Deuteronomy we'll look at, there's a couple different Hebrew terms that are used, translated in the English by mercy. But generally, it's to show us favor. We, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn the favor, but God shows us favor anyway. He gives us his compassions when we don't deserve it. And mercy waiting sort of as the front end of the title on lessons in Deuteronomy. Because what you'll find in this book, Deuteronomy looks backward at Israel's past failures. And you see God's mercy. And also Deuteronomy, as you go further in the book, it looks forward to Israel's future failures, all of which God knows. He tells them before they do it how they're going to sin and how he's going to respond. And what you find, looking backwards at sin and failure, looking forward at sin and failure, you know what you see in both both groups? You see God's mercy. His mercy is always there. His mercy is always waiting. Deuteronomy 13, 17, let me give you one of the examples of that. Deuteronomy 13, 17, if you look this up in context, you'll, you'll actually know that it's a passage in which God is requiring Israel to deal with sin in their midst, basically to judge sin in their midst. But this is the purpose, Deuteronomy 13, 17, 
do that, deal with sin in your midst, that, for this purpose, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of His anger, God has anger over sin, and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as He swore to your fathers that God wants you to do certain things so He is free to pour out His mercy on you. You go to Deuteronomy 30 towards the end of the book when God is telling them about their future failures. Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 3. He says, The time when you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. He says in the future, you're going to blow it, but God's going to bring you back. He's going to show you again his mercy. 800 years after this, and this is instructive to me. I think I read this a couple weeks ago in a different lesson, but Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 are given in the context of God having just judged the nation of Judah Jerusalem destroyed in the Babylonian captivity, and yet Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they're there sometimes. No, they're there occasionally. No, his mercies never come to an end. Right after God had judged Judah. Because he also said not only would he judge them, but he'd bring them back from Babylon. I love this one also. This is from Isaiah 30, 18. Listen to the language here. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. That the God you and I know and love and has saved us in Christ, He delights to honor Himself by showing mercy. By withholding judgment. By delaying judgment, he delights, he exalts himself by showing you and I and people just like us, showing us mercy. Before we get into the text proper, I want to front load this by giving us a sense of where we're going in the book and where it lies in God's economy in the Bible. Uh, Willie in Sunday school class, by the way, if you're not coming to the welcome class, in his Sunday school class, he's doing a four-week sort of... Uh, bird's eye, 30,000 foot high view of Scripture broadly. The folks that weren't enthusiastic about Deuteronomy, most of you, maybe you might, you might say, I don't even know where it is. I haven't read it, or I read it once and that was enough, or something like that. But the truth is, it's necessary for us to get some handholds, or we sort of feel like we're lost, and so we don't know what to make of it. So we'll have a little bit of an introduction here. So Deuteronomy is the fifth and last book of the five first books of the Bible that we call either the Torah, the Law, or out of the Greek, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And Moses is the author. Now those books claim Mosaic authorship, but it's also affirmed in the New Testament as well. By the way, depending on how widely or deeply you're read, there's all kinds of issues that I'm just taking for granted as I make this introduction. I'm not getting into all kinds of debates on one thing and another. Uh, Genesis, first book, 50 chapters long, big book, long book. You remember we've got the creation of the world. We've got the fall of Adam and Eve in sin. We've got the worldwide flood in God's judgment. We've got 
God's promises, his calling to Abraham and Abraham's heirs. And then the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob and all their kids. And Genesis ends, 50 chapters long, ends in Egypt where Joseph was sent before like Jesus was sent down for us to prepare a place for Jacob's descendants. That ends around 1800 B.C. Followed by Exodus, 40 chapters long. So you remember in Exodus, God sends Moses as the deliverer. Ten mighty acts of power and signs against Egypt and delivers them after the Passover. Egypt's strongest force on the earth is subdued by God's miracles. And Israel not only goes out, they go out with the wealth of Egypt. And God takes them to Sinai. And he, he, he institutes a covenant with his, his people now. Jacob's descendants are now a nation, and that nation is in covenant with God. That takes us to about 1445 B.C., and they're located at the end of Exodus at Mount Sinai, where that covenant was instituted. Everyone's favorite, Leviticus is next. And when's the last time you guys read Leviticus? There's a, there's a reason people don't read Leviticus. Of all the first five books, it's challenging. Only 27 chapters long, it's the shortest but it's all these directions primarily, not entirely, but to the priesthood. So it tells you what kind of offering to make, how it's to be offered, what's clean, what's not clean, how to make the unclean clean, etc. The holidays, how to celebrate them. It's an instruction book primarily for the Levitical priesthood. And that goes another year later, still at Mount Sinai, two years after the Exodus, that's when Leviticus ends. Numbers follows the storyline from where Leviticus ends two years after the Exodus, and Numbers takes us to the next 38 years. So you'll read there, and I'll mention some things from Numbers this morning, but Numbers takes us through the wilderness, and it's the opportunity for Israel to go into the land of promise they don't. That's what we'll read about this morning. And then their wilderness wanderings, and then Numbers ends with Israel, the nation poised on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to go into the land of promise. They fought two kings on the east side. They defeated them. Two and a half tribes of Israel have said, hey, we love this place. We'd like to stay here. Moses says, great. And that's where it ends about 1406 B.C. And that brings us to Deuteronomy. 34 chapters long. It picks up where numbers left. And Deuteronomy, which means second law, second law, it's given right before Moses dies. And right before those generations, not the Exodus generation, the Exodus generation has died out when Deuteronomy is, is written and the, the stuff we'll be looking at this morning. They've died out and Moses is telling the second and third generation, he's reiterating the law, the covenant that God made at Sinai. And he's telling the generations that will go into the land of promise what happened before and also some of what's going to happen after their generations to their descendants as well. Deuteronomy appears to be the book of the law. When you read in 2 Kings 22, Josiah's the king, and he's having the temple repaired. This is crazy, isn't it? But while the priests are repairing the temple, they find a book, a scroll, and they call it the book of the law. And Basically, most commentators assume it's the book of Deuteronomy. And we assume that because they understood they were under God's curse because of how they'd been living. And Deuteronomy said, if you do these things, this is how I will respond in judgment. And Josiah heard that 
And the book of Deuteronomy instituted the last revival before captivity and the destruction of Judah under good King Josiah. It was the book of Deuteronomy. If you read Matthew 4 and Luke 4, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he quotes the Bible, what's he quoting? Each time, he's quoting Deuteronomy. In fact, there's no book out of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes more often than the book of Deuteronomy. So hopefully your whistle's wet a little bit for this book. We'll take this stages at a time, of course. We're going to start in chapter 1. Guys, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. I'm going to read more text than I usually do, but it's a narrative, and that's, that's the way we want to do that this morning. If you want to, you can close your eyes, and I'll assume you're not asleep. It's good. I'll assume we're good. You're listening to the story. And if you want to read along, of course, feel free to do that. I'm going to skip a couple places, but I'll tell you where I do because we want the narrative of what's going on specifically this morning. So this is Deuteronomy 1, starting at verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. Those are your vacation spots and mine, right? You've been to all those places? Guys, we don't know where most of these places are. A few of them are listed in numbers, but if you don't know where they are, that's just fine. Uh, the Arabah is the great rift valley that goes from the Sea of Galilee right on down the Jordan Valley. So they're, they're on that east side of that. Verse 2, it's 11 days journey from Horeb, and in Deuteronomy, Mount Sinai is called Horeb. It's 11 days journey from Horeb, Mount Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir, it's another mountain in the Edomite area, to Kadesh Barnea. So basically he says, here's the Jordan River, and here's Mount Sinai, and we came up to Mount Seir, and then we came over to Kadesh Barnea, to the southern portion of the land of promise. Uh, verse 3, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them, after he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edre. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. Uh, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites, to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland, in the Negeb, southern part of the land of promise by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanite, Lebanon further north, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So he's looking back almost 40 years to when they left Sinai the original time and came up to Kadesh Barnea. We're going to skip verses 9 through 18. It's a bit of a digression related to the number of people in Israel and the way that they would institute basically government and oversight. Verse 19, we set out from Horeb and we went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you 
Do not fear or do not be dismayed. Verses 23, uh, excuse me, 22 through 25 describe spies being sent out. They inspect the land. They come back and initially they give a positive report of the land they're going up into. Verse 26, yet you would not go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, He has brought us up out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, and remember this is the negative report the spies brought back, the people, the people of the land, they're greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. They're all walled cities. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. These would be giants like Goliath. I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, like a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night, cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except... Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Caleb's one of the two faithful spies. He'd already been into the land. Even with me, Moses says, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, your, your little tykes, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. In other words, turn away from the land of promise. You're heading back into the wilderness. And we won't read this. But the text goes on to say that they say, okay, we're sorry, we'll go up and fight them now. And God and Moses say, don't do it, I'm not with you. And they say, no, we're good. And they're not, and they're defeated. Now I want to read something too, just a verse from Numbers 14. Your study sheet shows that Numbers 13 and 14 are a parallel account to what Moses is giving in Deuteronomy 1. But listen to this too, because it informs the dynamic of what's going on in, in this Exodus generation and why God acted as he did. Numbers 14.22, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt. So remember, if you're a Jew, if you're of the Exodus generation, you saw ten mighty miracles of God in Egypt. You saw God's power. You saw the Passover. You saw the army of Egypt destroyed in the Red Sea. You got manna in the wilderness. You got water from the rock. You see God's presence in a cloud and a pillar of fire. You've seen this. I mean, how much more can you see? God's come down on Sinai. You've seen all this. 
he says, uh, you've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness. Now listen, you have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. None of you shall see the land that I swore to give to your fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. Do you see where God's coming from? This, this, uh, the, at Kadesh Barnea, the guy's saying, we don't believe. We think God's out to destroy us. We're not going up to fight. God says, this is what you've been doing for the last two years, at least, in the wilderness, and I'm not doing it anymore. You've despised me because you've despised my word, even though you have every reason in the world to believe in me because you've seen me. You've seen my works of power. You've heard my words. You've seen my consistency. And you reject my word anyway. And you've, you've rejected it all along. And God says, we're done. Kadesh Barnea was not the first. It was just the latest. When they said, uh, we don't trust you, God. We don't trust you, even though we should. So Deuteronomy starts with Moses relaying their history from the time they leave Sinai to their 11 days travel to Kadesh Barnea. And the generation that had seen God's power says, no thanks, emphatically, we're not going in. We don't trust you. We don't believe you. Uh, we'll get to the three points that I want to bring up this morning now. And that's really related to unbelief and then how God responded to that. When we read verses 2 and 3, and I hope you caught this, they're supposed to be jarring. We're supposed to read those two verses and say, What? So in verse 2 and 3, uh, it takes how many days to go from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea? It takes 11 days. So in 11 days, they were ready to go into the land of promise. And yet, 38 years later, Moses is talking to a generation about going into the land of promise. 11 days becomes 38 years, and we're supposed to say, what in the world happened? Why weren't they there four decades ago? Why is this only happening now? Remember, he's speaking to the people that will go in. What, what happened? Verse 32 tells us they didn't believe God. They didn't believe. Now, guys, they had every reason in the world to believe. If, if evidence will get you there, they had evidence, and they still didn't believe. Kent started a series last week called Head to Heart, which I think just in timing is really, really key in which he was distinguishing what someone might say, I believe, from what he called their conviction, or we might say what we really believe. And you know how you tell the difference between what I might say I believe and my conviction? It's by what you do. It's by what you do. So you can go along in a crowd, and you can be part of the crowd, and you cannot believe what the rest of the crowd believes, but you're just part of the crowd. And this generation, the indictment here is you didn't believe. And in refusing to believe a God who can't lie in the first place and who's demonstrated his power on your behalf and his commitment, if you can't believe that, God says you're despising me. That's what's going on here. The reason they didn't go in, the 38-year gap, is because of unbelief. Unbelief is the issue. Look at verses 32 and 33. You did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch tents, fire by night, cloud by day. In other words, for the last two years, you've seen God provide for you every single day. And his presence has visibly been with you all along the way. 
Israel refused to trust and believe and follow God, though they had ample evidence to do so. So why did the Exodus generation not go into the land of promise? Unbelief. Now, it's not just stated there. If you go into the New Testament, into Hebrews 3, this incident and the Exodus generation become a warning for you and I to be careful not to be unbelievers like they were. When you read, we're not entirely sure who wrote Hebrews in the New Testament. But it's written for two primary reasons. The first is to show that Jesus is superior to anything in the Old Testament. That he's the substance of which the Old Testament were simply shadows. And when Hebrews was written, there were Hebrew Christians who were being persecuted as Christians. And guys, in the early church period, Jews had protection generally that Christians, believers in Jesus, did not. And so they're being persecuted and they're tempted to fall away. And the writer says don't do it because there's nothing left to go back to in Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was in the Old Testament of Judaism. He's the substance. And the other thing was this. And he says, persevere in faith to the end. Don't give up on Jesus. Continue to believe in Jesus. Jesus is your hope. Don't give up early. In that context, listen to what he says. He's speaking of this Exodus generation when he writes this. He says, For who were those who heard, heard God's word, heard God speak, and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses, the Exodus generation? And with whom was he, was God provoked for 40 years? Or despised, who despised God for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, i.e. the land of promise, but to those who were disobedient, and we're not done here, they're disobedient. Okay, they're disobedient. God, I got that. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. What leads to disobedience? Unbelief leads to disobedience. Guys, you can't get around this. We do what we believe ultimately. Now, we may have some beliefs that we sin against occasionally. That's, that's probably true for all of us. But ultimately, what is your life characterized by? That's what you really believe. You can't get away from it. I do what I believe. And he looks back on this Exodus generation and says, they didn't obey because they didn't believe. The sin of unbelief, of refusing to believe God and act according to his word and promises, it harms us. It always harms us. Now, in Israel, related to Deuteronomy and the land of promise, it harmed Israel when they were going into the land of promise because it delayed it by almost 40 years. It will also harm them in the future in their going out of the land of promise in judgment in the Babylonian captivity. Now, there's a psalm that uh, we bless, uh, you're going in and you're coming out. Well, they were cursed in their going in and their going out because of unbelief. They didn't believe God. I want to pause here for just a second. If you have a study sheet, as you think about what you do in life, not what you say, if actions reflect belief, what do you really believe? If actions reflect belief, what do you really... And I'm talking big rocks here. If I look at my schedule, what do I do? What do I voluntarily do? What, what values or beliefs does that refer to? Does that reflect? The way I spend my money, 
what does that say about what I believe? You, you get the picture. The big rocks of life. What, is that, what do my actions reflect? What do they say about what I really believe? Uh, let me read a couple verses that I didn't already. This is from the very end of Deuteronomy in the first verse of chapter 2. Listen to what Moses says. You returned, this is after they're defeated by the Amorites there at Kadesh Barnea, you returned and you wept before the Lord. <laughs> you know, we, got, we got our tails kicked. We're not, we're not feeling the love, Lord. What are you going to do for us? You wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh Barnea many days, the days that you remained there. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. So you get two phrases here. For many days, Kadesh Barnea. For many days we traveled around Mount Seir. You know, if you read Acts... With any care, you realize Luke uses understatement when he's making points. So he doesn't say there's this huge crowd. He says there were not a few people. How, how much time is many days? It's 38 years. Many days, repeated twice here, is 38 years. So he says, yep, you rejected it. You came weeping to God and, and oh, give us another chance. God says, nope. So many days, two different places is 38 years. Unbelief and disobedience turned two years into 40. So God's mercy is still there, but this is what we're talking about. It's delayed, isn't it? Because the Exodus generation, they don't get to go in to the land of rest, into the land of promise. The text actually says, if you were 20 years old and up, you were part of the Exodus generation. And you didn't go into the land of promise, with a few exceptions. 20 years and up. If you were 19 and below, you could have still lived through those years and gone into the land of promise. But, but the many days is 38 years. God was willing to bless the Exodus generation and take them into the land of promise. That's what he would have done. Israel is a nation... In spite of the Exodus generation's refusal to believe and obey, Israel as a nation still goes in. The Exodus generation does not prevent God's promise of the land of promise to Abraham's heirs. It's simply delayed. God's promises were delayed. They were not canceled. His mercy remained present and active and Israel, not that Exodus generation, but Israel would still go in to the land of promise. There's something else that I want to point out. And this is from Numbers 14.33. Again, it's the same time frame. It's the same rejection of God trusting Him and obeying Him at Kadesh Barnea. The Exodus generation didn't go in. And usually that's our focus. And that's appropriate because the lesson there is believe and obey. God's worthy of believing. And when we reject Him and we don't trust Him, it's a way of despising the God that has demonstrated all He needs to, particularly in the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. There's no more evidence we need to trust God. They didn't need any more evidence. They simply needed to believe. So we focus on them and we say, don't follow their example. So they didn't get to go into the land of promise. But did the Exodus generation's failure have a negative impact on anyone besides them? 
And it did. And it did in spades. This is Numbers 14.33. Your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years. And this is what God said. And shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. So we focus on the Exodus generation and that they die, they don't go in. But God says in Numbers, your sin brought suffering to your children and no doubt to your grandchildren as well. So imagine this, you're 19 years old and you just learned that your next four decades are going to be in the wilderness instead of the land of promise. Your life is going to be spent in the wilderness while your parents die until that generation's gone. So the Exodus generation sin, the effect, the impact of their unbelief and disobedience, it didn't end with them. It affected their children. It affected their grandchildren. Can you imagine? I'm 10 years old, and I go into the land of promise when I'm 50. That's quite something, isn't it? I'm not feeling the love. But the effect, which is to say, friends, your sins and mine... They're never only personal. They're never only private. Your sin affects other people. My sin affects other people. And the closer the relationship, the greater the impact our sin has on others. We have the ability to bless or to effectively curse, if you will, to bring suffering into the lives of others based on our belief in obedience or unbelief and faithlessness. That's a big lesson. Those kids grew up in the wilderness, God calls it suffering. Those are his words because of their parents' failure. We want to be very careful when we're being tempted or contemplating sin. Not only how does that dishonor God, how does that affect me, what will that do to someone else? What will the impact be beyond myself? I, yeah. And that's a good thing to pray. Lord, help me. Uh, in front of a service years ago, decades ago, <laughs> The guy we were praying together just the way we do here before service. And he says, Lord, help us not to blow it. That was it. <laughs> help us not to blow it. You know, help the service achieve what you want achieved as we get up to lead in one way or another. I want to hasten to add here too, as we're thinking about the way this applies to our life, the land of promise in Israel is not God's promise to you and me. We're the church age. We have a different set of promises. So Ephesians 1.3 says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Where, where is your blessing? Where is your land of promise? It's in and with Christ. Our blessings are spiritual. Our rest, this, is, this comes up in Hebrews 4 as well. We don't have a Sabbath day per se because we have rest every day 24-7 in Christ. So we're not saying apples to apples here, okay, when we think of applying this. And last, God's promises and His mercy remain. So the Exodus generation did not go into the land of promise. Their unbelief cost them. But their unbelief did not prevent God's promises from being fulfilled. Their unbelief did not prevent God's promises from being fulfilled. And remember, if you noticed in this language, and you'll see it elsewhere, God says, I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later again in the book of Hebrews, which by the way, the book of Hebrews is a reiteration of all kinds of stuff out of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It's a recapitulation of a bunch of the Old Testament. I'm going to lose my train of thought here.
Yeah, that's what happens when you're 64, Willie. Willie's smiling at me. Thank you. Um, yeah, well. Deut- <laughs> Deuteronomy 1, 39. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing my limitations, Alan. <laughs> Deuteronomy 1, 39. Your little ones who you said would become a prey, your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Sorry, it's this. When God wanted to make a point later in Hebrews, it says since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So God says, not only did I say something, that's singular, I swore it. It's, it's as if a God who can't lie says it doubly. You can't break my word. My promise is going to come true. And so he says to the Exodus generation, you're not going in. But that doesn't keep me from fulfilling the promises I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because your descendants are going in. You haven't canceled the promise. You've delayed the promise. But God's mercy means the promise will still be fulfilled. The promise of land God made to Abraham over 400 years earlier could not be thwarted or frustrated by one generation's unbelief. And God, guys, sometimes our view of God is so small, we think God is like us, and God is nothing like us in this sense. God's omniscient. God knows your future, every thought you'll ever have. He knows it like it's yesterday. And He's omnipotent. He can do anything He wants. When God makes promises, it's based on God, not on us. When God swears... He knows everything that's coming. He knew every act of disobedience before he promised Israel these promises. So when we look and we say they don't deserve it, they blew it, God's promises are off, it's like, no, not at all. God's promises are dependent on God. And so we want to make sure we take God's promises as seriously as God does and we don't write them off lightly. Listen to this out of 2 Corinthians This is chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul had told the Corinthian church on his journeys, first he said, hey, I'm going to come down and see you guys. And then he turns around and says, oh, I'm not going to come now. And so they say of Paul, you know what, you can't trust this guy. First it's yes, and then it's no. And so Paul knows there's sort of this credibility thing on the line. And so this is what he says. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. God in Christ is not wavering. He doesn't say yes to something and then later say no. But in Him, it is always yes. Jesus is God's yes to God's promises. He is the guarantor of God's promises. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Jesus, if you will, he's the exclamation point on any promise God has ever made. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He's the ultimate guarantor of everything God has promised. God's mercy remains guaranteed in Christ by which God ultimately fulfills all his promises. Now let me give you another example. 1,400 years after Moses... Jesus came to Israel as God promised he would, and he offered himself to Israel as their king. They said no, emphatically. Think of the Exodus generation. 
God offers them the land of promise, and they say no, emphatically. Did that generation's rejection of the offer negate the promises of God to Israel? It just delayed them. The promise is still good. Does that mean that Israel has lost the promises God made regarding Israel, their Messiah, and their kingdom? And I say emphatically, no, it does not. Now, the Exodus generation delayed the blessing to their children by about 40 years, almost four decades. It's been 2,000 years. Man, that's a long time, isn't it? Two millennia since the Jewish nation rejected Jesus as their Messiah and King. Does that mean God's promises to the nation of Israel? You remember the promises. Guys, the Old Testament is filled with unfulfilled promises to the nation of Israel. Jesus is their king, ruling from Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Israel are the center of the earth. The Jews will wear out the work of their hands. If you die at 100, you're considered an infant because you've been judged because you'll live a 1,000 years through Christ's millennial reign. Are those promises negated because that generation of Jews rejected their Messiah? I say emphatically not. It can't happen. Because God's promises of land and descendants and blessing to the Jewish nation was always predicated on God, not on Israel. Guys, you and I are in trouble if God's promises depend on your faithfulness and mine. Absolutely. When Jesus says he gives us life forever, that's not because you remain a good person and you obey. That's because Jesus keeps eternally those who are entrusted to his care. So we want to be really careful when we write off promises God made to someone else or some other time that they've been left out or somehow they're no good anymore. And I say this because there's a prominent branch of theology that will tell you there's no future for the nation of Israel. Jesus doesn't return to, to save his covenant people. But listen to these words from Jesus. This is Luke 13. Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's being rejected basically by the Jewish leadership. And he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now that's not a place I want to go. I don't want to treat those people well. How often would I have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You said, we won't go up. You said, we won't have him as our king. Behold, your house is forsaken. So is God done with Israel? Your house is forsaken, and I tell you, maybe not, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel is going to see Jesus again. In fact, Zechariah says they'll see the one that they pierced. They'll groan like a child that they've lost, and they realize we'd rejected him corporately. We'd rejected him. But Jesus says, oh, you will see me, and you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's still going to happen. That, that, they're like the Exodus generation. They can't keep God's promise from occurring. It's just delayed. And by the way, in God's sovereignty, it's delayed for your benefit and mine. Because in these days of Jewish rejection of Jesus, their Messiah, God's gathering people from every nation, tribe, tongue, on the earth, right? This great uncountable number that is the church today. That's what God's doing. But he will yet keep his promises to Israel, just as he did to the generations that followed the Exodus generation.
Israel's blessing in Christ is delayed but not canceled because God's mercy remains. You can read more of that, by the way, in Romans 11. As we wind down, guys, as we make some practical applications, are there promises or commands in Scripture that we don't believe practically because we're not doing them or commands that we're not obeying? As we look at our own life, we're not the Exodus generation, we're not the generation that rejected Jesus, but we can do the same things they did, right? We can say, no thanks, Lord. We can delay God's mercy in our life, and, and frankly, for the benefit of others, we can delay God's blessing in the lives of others. I've just got a few examples. Are we believing God to save us from temptation to sin? By the way, to know God's promises to you and God's commands to you, what should you be doing? You always should be reading our Bible. How else are we going to know what God has promised us, promises to believe, or commands to obey if we don't read our Bible. We're not in the Word, and the Word is not in us. Are we believing God to save us from temptation to sin? This is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which, by the way, looks back on the Old Testament stories again. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, and He'll make a way of escape for you. Guys, every time we're, we're faced with temptation, we could quote 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Lord, where's my way of escape? How do I get out of this? Because God has promised us we don't have to sin. He'll give us a way out. Are we believing that? Do we act on that? Are we embracing peace and restoration when we confess our sin? I'm thinking of 1 John 1, 9 here. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just because Jesus has died for our sins to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes we do this. We know we're supposed to confess our sins, so we say, Lord, I blew it, I'm sorry, and then we go away with a guilty conscience as if we're not forgiven. But the Scripture says God does forgive us. We're washed, we're clean, we're, we're good to go. Remember that judicially all of our sins are covered under the blood of Christ. Your sin and mine in time, it affects my ability to enjoy a relationship with God. So my fellowship is disturbed. My heart gets harder. But I'm, I'm supposed to know, Lord, I confessed my sin. When I get up and walk away, my conscience should be clear. Now, if there's something I need to address with someone else, that's another issue. But the Lord and I, we're good to go. Are we carrying guilt when we should say, we should quote this verse to ourselves: I've confessed, God has forgiven, Jesus' blood covers my sin, I'm good to go. We should have a clear conscience. Are we giving others the same forgiveness that we have been given? This is Mark eleven twenty five. 25. Uh, whenever you, by the way, listen to this. Whenever, what does that cover? Everything. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have, I wonder what this covers, anything against anyone. Is anything not covered there? Forgive if you have anything against anyone so your Father in heaven may forgive you so you can experience mercy and grace and your fellowship can remain intact. Are we acting on that? Are we obeying that, forgiving? And the last and, of course, the most important, have we received the blessing that's better than the land of promise in Israel? John eleven twenty five and 26, the great passage of Jesus calling Lazarus from the dead. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And listen to the way the verse ends. Do you believe this? A good friend of ours died, and we had that verse on her tombstone. 
so that when people came up and read Grace's little deal on her tombstone, it would ask them the question, do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe Jesus saves? Has Jesus saved you? Have you trusted Christ? That's the thing that matters at the end of the day. Everything else, dust in the wind, right? It blows away. Christ is all. Yeah. God has given us Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Like the Exodus generation, we have all the evidence we need. The only question is, have we believed? So which of God's promises do we need to trust today? Guys, God has made all kinds of promises to us as believers right here today, right now. What blessing or provision from God merely waits for us to believe and appropriate? Most of us are living far, far below the level of peace and joy, sense of fellowship, of shalom, or well-being that God means for us to experience. What's waiting for us? What mercy is God holding for us? It's simply delayed because we haven't believed. His mercy and grace are constants. You and I cannot thwart ultimately God's word or his promises, but we can determine the degree to which we know and possess and enjoy his blessings now. Kathy and I have realized over the years, our decisions, this is the way they do. God gets us where he wants us to go. Even if I'm kicking and screaming or I'm not feeling the love or not doing one thing, God always gets us where he wants us to go because he's a good father and, and he's at work. What we've realized though is this, we get to determine the experience of our time. We determine, uh, I, that, I enjoyed that because I was in fellowship with God and life was good. Or we realize, no, I was consumed with hatred, unforgiveness, stress, worry, anxiety, and it wasn't such a good ride. We don't determine where we go. We just determine the experience as we get there. Because God keeps his promises. I wonder what mercies of God we're delaying because we're not believing what he said or we're not acting on what he said. The worship team can come up and you can stand, please. I want to read together. This is on the bottom of your study sheet as well as on the screen. And let me just give very brief setting. At the end of Romans 11, Paul's closing down a bunch of theology and he's talking to the Gentiles about the Jews. And then he's talking about Jews and Gentiles and where all this ends and what you'll see is God has established mercy for us all. So let's read this together. As regards the Gospels, they are enemies for your... Ah, oh, sorry. Guys, sorry, I'm on the wrong page. 28, 32. Okay, well, let's just... We'll, re we'll read what's in front of us. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, 